Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Its mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast for the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I am Tim Robertson, your host of this podcast, and also the coordinator of the training program within the organization. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers is an international organization devoted to the study of the sun, the moon, the planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available to the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. The Association of Lunar Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomena and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar Planetary Observers also lovingly known as the Strolling Astronomer. The Association of Lunar Planetary Observers maintains many individual observing sections and programs devoted to the studies of the solar system bodies and phenomenon. Each is managed by one or more coordinators that collect and study submitted observations. You can visit us on the internet at www.alpo-astronomy.com Org. That again, www.alpo-astronomy.org. Now, on to the Observer's Notebook. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the podcast. Our guest today is Tony Cook. He's a coordinator of the Lunar Transit Phenomenon section of uh, the ALPO. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Hi there. Um, yeah, I'm a, a physics lecturer at Aberystwyth University on the western coast of, of Great Britain. And um, at work, I and my students have access to a couple of remotely operated SCT telescopes in the size of range of about 10 to 11 inches. So we use those quite a lot. Uh, they're equipped with low-light sensitive CCD cameras that are used to detect lunar impact flashes. Uh, but we also have a filter wheel on those, which we use for lunar remote sensing studies. Now, at home, I have a, an 8-inch Dobsonian I've had for many years, and uh, that forms a third component of a, a kind of British lunar impact flash monitoring network we, we try to get working when the sky is clear. Um, but also do more, more general sort of uh, lunar surface monitoring with, with, uh, with that equipment. So the moon is your main focus in observing? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Why is that? Um, I, I don't know, really. Uh, I was first introduced to astronomy by Sir Patrick Moore. Uh, my parents took me down to see him. and oh um, he, he He was very, very keen on the moon, and uh, I've sort of kept that interest ever since. Yeah, so that's when the astronomy bug hit you. Huh? How old were you then? Oh goodness me! I'm, I was I was a teenager, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah it was many years ago. I think it was okay. about 1975. Okay, so. that's about when I got joined the ALP right around then. And when did you get involved with the ALP? Oh, that wasn't until I was working in the States. I was very lucky to work at the Air and Space Museum. And towards at the end of my time there, uh, I was introduced to the to the ALPO from work I'd done in the British Astronomical Association lunar section. 
on, on the um, topic of um, lunar transient phenomena. Oh, so you were in Washington, D.C. at the Air and Space Museum? That's right, yes. I worked at the Smithsonian for about uh, five years. Oh, what did you uh, do there? Uh, I was working on um, stereo matching, which is looking at uh, image pairs of the moon and also Mercury, trying to find stereo images, and from that, uh, extracting topographic height maps for the first time of, of large areas of the moon and the planet Mercury. Wow, that's very interesting. And, and that was all using archive data, so that was quite quite interesting. Oh, yeah. And apparently the last year you were honored in some way with a astronomical body? Yeah, I was... Very, very honoured to uh, have a uh, an asteroid named after my after myself after the the work I've been involved in with Alpo and BA trying to get amateur astronomers uh, doing useful science studies on on the moon. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about the lunar transient phenomenon section. What is lunar transient phenomenon? Lunar transient phenomena, or we'll use the acronym LTP, uh, basically little, very occasional, what people reported are sort of glows they've seen on the moon. They can be sort of white light glows or colors, can be flashes of light, um, and they can also be perhaps loss of detail for short periods of time or grayness inside shadows. That pretty much sums up what they are. But they are very transient. They can be a fraction of a second if you see a flash of light on the moon, or they can be perhaps up to an hour or two long, but typically they last a few minutes. Now, these are actual features that happen on the moon? They're not atmospheric in the Earth and things? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, we're not absolutely too sure, um, which is a, a kind of odd thing to study, something which you're not too sure about. Mm -hmm. There are certainly um, a lot of explanations using uh, atmospheric spectral dispersion, the Earth's atmosphere, which can produce nice colors on the moon, and blurrings of detail due to atmospheric seeing. But it's when you get um, observations by people simultaneously in different localities, or seeing something which we cannot model by these uh, atmospheric or optical effects, that's when it becomes a bit more interesting. Sounds like an interesting area of study. It certainly is, yes. yeah. That's what, right. what kind of uh, observant equipment is required for this? Well, basically, many of these reports have been seen with the human eye, people just uh, looking at the moon, and they were not expecting to see anything unusual, but they report these things. Um, but you can also use CCD cameras and video cameras, low-light sensitive cameras to look into shadows and the, the night side of the moon and so on. So those are the, that's the kind of equipment you need. Plus a, a telescope, I'd say, at least a six-inch aperture. Okay. The larger, the better, of course. Now, are there different types of observing programs within the transient phenomenon section? Yes, there are. We specialize in looking for glows in Earthshine. For example, Aristarchus Crater, uh, there are many, many reports of people seeing that as exceptionally bright, almost visible to the naked eye without looking for a telescope. So we're very curious to see if there's any pattern to that, uh, if it's seen at particular libration conditions on the moon. That's to do with the moon's wobble, which shift in uh, longitude and latitude. It wobbles a little bit in those two directions. So we're trying to see if it's correlated with that. Uh, we're also comparing up with the brightness of Aristarchus on the, the day side of the moon, at full moon, which is, is basically what you see, the kind of image you get in the moon when, when you're looking in an Earthshine. It's a, a full moon image, but a lot, lot fainter, but illuminated by the, the light from the Earth. So we're very keen to have people taking images of Earthshine. That's, that's one avenue. Um, 
we want people to take color images of the moon at high resolution and do sort of time lapse just in case colors crop up in craters as people have seen in the past. But the most important one we have of all of them is to actually trying to disprove past um, lunar transient uh, phenomena reports. And, and we do this by getting observers to look at the moon under pretty much the same illumination when somebody saw a glow in the past or something in a shadow in the past. Uh, and of course, we have much better equipment now, so we can compare these new observations with what people saw at the time, a kind of ground truth measurement, and see if what they saw was perhaps normal and just a misinterpretation by the observer. Or we can take modern-day images and we can blur them in the computer to simulate atmospheric effects. We can add artificial color to simulate chromatic aberration in the optics or atmospheric spectral dispersion. Again, see if that correlates with what was reported in the past. And when, when we don't get any correlation, then it becomes interesting because we, you know, we can't really explain what was seen in the past. I find this very fascinating because, I mean, as an astronomer, the moon has always been something that it's, it's usually the first thing you look at when you get a telescope, you know, mm -hmm. and then you move on from that. Yeah. But yeah. the moon is so close to us and it's so dynamic. I mean, just what you're explaining, what people can see with the telescope, you know, it's, it's, it gives, you know, it's exciting. To have the moon yes, it is. Um, I wouldn't say it's uh, particularly dynamic. I mean, from the from what we learned from spacecraft data, it's a pretty dead world. I mean, it's it's uh, some of the most we do see impact flashes on the moon from recent meteorites striking the lunar surface. That's what Brian Kudnick does at Alpo. Um, but in terms of geological processes, we're talking about usually about sort of millions or hundreds of millions of years. So there shouldn't be much going on. True. However, the NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has taken pictures when it got to the moon and compared them with pictures now, and they have found some changes. They're of the order of about meters or tens of meters in size, and they're due to landslides, ray material thrown out by fresh craters, and so on. So we have a bit of a conflict there in that although small-scale changes are happening on the moon almost as we speak, mm -hmm. we shouldn't really be seeing any large-scale changes so that's at kind of odds to what some people have been observing in the past. So we're not too sure what's going on there. Okay. Now, you mentioned uh, some of the NASA work, the space probes. Mm -hmm. Is there much amateur and professional collaboration in the section? Not at the moment. There has been in the past. I mean, during the Apollo era, there was a, a, a huge bandwagon effect. You know, literally hundreds of people around the world were observing the moon, reporting uh, LTP going on all the time and uh, I, I personally don't believe the moon was suddenly active when Apollo was there I think it was people getting over enthusiastic and just reporting the minor just minor little things which looked odd to them and these ended up in the uh, catalogues produced by NASA there was there was one produced by um, Winnie Cameron which is um, that the main catalogue which is available that had about uh, just over 1,000 reports in it um, but a lot of those are a little bit untrustworthy. And since that time, we've we also had um, when, when David Darling was in, in charge of coordinating uh, LTP observations, we had observations during the Clementine mission in 1994 and later during the Lunar Prospector mission. Um, so th there has been collaboration in the past, but presently there, there's not a lot going on right now. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that uh, simultaneous observations are really useful. 
because it gives you the opportunity to, okay, now one observation is validated with another. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, if we get two images taken from diff different geographical locations in the world, just like for impact flash observing, you can pretty much show there's something possibly going on on the moon, unless it's a, a natural appearance of a feature and people are just perhaps not used to interpreting what it looks like. That's that's one possibility. But yes, dual observations are very good ways to confirm uh, LTP. Do you ever have programs where you set up, okay, for this time period, we'd like to have more than two or three observers watching this area of the moon? At the moment, no. We've done that in the past. Uh, at the moment, we try to concentrate on disproving past LTP. We publish uh, a set of predictions. It's online, and I'll give you the website for that uh, later. And we encourage people to go out in different parts of the world and observe particular features. So it'll match oh. the illumination to within about plus or minus half a degree to win when an LTP was seen in the past. Okay. So th this is really valuable because it can disprove a lot of these LTP and we can get rid of all the bogus observations and just concentrate on the good ones. Okay. How many current contributors do you guys have? Right. In the States, it's presently about two observers, but they are very, very keen. Uh, we have a group of observers in Argentina and another group of observers in Italy, the UAI group. In the UK, we have about four active observers. Uh, we have one observer in France, uh, observer in Poland. I think we have an observer in Republic of Ireland. So we've got a few little – oh, and one in New Zealand as well. So we've got a lot of um, good, uh, trustworthy people around the world. They don't observe all the time, but when they do, they, their observations are really, really useful. And most of them are uh, CCD images, or are they visual? Visual? What type of observations? Are we they? do still have some visual observations, and they're very welcome because you can then compare those with the majority of LTP reports, which were visual in the past. But we also get, um, like you said, CCD observations. A lot of those come in, and we can vary the resolution of those on the computer to match visual observations. So they're, they're very, very useful in that respect. It sounds like video might actually be something helpful for this type of observing, too. Absolutely. A time-lapse video, um, that, that will be very, very useful, particularly looking at lunar earthshine or monitoring the interiors of uh, lunar shadows. Okay. Where are the observations published? Right. The observations are presently published in the TLO, the Lunar Observer, which is a publication of the, the lunar section of ALPO. And uh, almost an identical copy is published in the British Astronomical Association uh, Lunar Section Circular. And then every so often I produce summaries of LTP seen during the year for the Strolling Astronomer okay. uh, Journal. Yeah. Okay. What do you see for the future of the Lunar Transit Phenomenon section? Well, I'll be getting a paper out sometime um, on the statistics of LTP once we've fil filtered out some of these bogus observations. Um, and then uh, hopefully that will get into print and then we can concentrate on particular aspects like looking inside shadows of craters. That's, that's a particularly valuable area to look at, looking at the brightness of Aristarchus, monitoring that over time. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a whole range of things we can, we, we can be doing. Great. Is there any uh, additional information you'd like to share about the program? I will send you a list of websites so you can okay. put that online. Um, I would like to say um, there are several professional astronomers who have been interested in this in the past. Uh, I mean, Dolphus in France recorded some uh, LTP using polarized light. 
Professor Arlene Krotz uh, at Columbia University was doing uh, a large number of statistical analyses on, on LTP. Um, so th- there's there's a lot of uh, good um, you know professional studies out there. Okay. How can everybody get a hold of you? They can contact me on my um, email address, which is atc at abba.ac.uk, or on the Alpo address on the, the website there. Are you on the Twitter or Facebook or anything like that? I have a uh, LTP alert uh, site on Twitter, and I'll, again, I'll send you that uh, details okay. for that later on. I'll add all those links and your email address to the show notes. Okay, thank you very much. All right, Tony, well, thanks for coming on. Okay, it's been nice talking to you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I again want to thank our special guest, Tony Cook, for coming on today. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I do appreciate it. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud. The link is in the show notes. And we're available on Google Play and Stitcher. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give as little as a dollar a month. All the way up to $35 a month where you will receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on this podcast. With that, I'd like to thank the producer of the podcast, Steve Seidentop, for his generous support of the Observer's Notebook. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is available in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at at timrobertson56. If you're interested in joining the ALPO, membership begins at only $14 a year. You can find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. You can also find the ALPO on Facebook by searching ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. Again, the ALPO is an international organization devoted to the study of the moon, sun, planets, asteroids, meteors, and comets. Our goals are to stimulate, coordinate, and generally promote the study of these bodies using methods and instruments that are available to the communities of both amateur and professional astronomers. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.